Good evening, everyone. My name is Anthony, and I am a very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank Jan, uh, John and the the, uh, the committee for you know putting this thing together and giving me a kind in, invite to come out here and uh, share my experience, strength, and hope. I'd also like to j- thank John and Kathy for um, you know hosting me for the weekend, which is really really you know we're, we're, I come down to Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm just met with all the southern hospitality. You know, uh, I also want to thank Tom for just uh, Tom O from North Carolina, who just has loved me my whole time I've known him, almost 20 years, even when I couldn't love myself. And I want to thank him for picking me up from the airport today. Thanks, Rich. Love you, pal. Um, my sobriety date. And, and you know something? When I first got sober, one of the things my sponsor told me, he said, you need three things. You know, he said, you need three things to get sober. And my sobriety date is the most important date in my life. And I really mean that. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not married, but if I ever do find a beautiful lady and I get married, this will be more important than my anniversary date. It's more important than the day that I uh, graduated from a prestigious university. It's the most important date in my life. It's May 1st, 2016. And it's, it's important because that's the day where my creator entered into my heart and really began to transform me in a way that I've come to, you know, as see as being, a, I, I can't call it anything but a miracle. <laughs> you know, when you when you really think about, like, the places we came from to where we are today, um, that date will be permanently tattooed on my heart, you know. Um, the other thing he said I needed was a sponsor. Uh, and I have a sponsor. His name's Harold, as John was talking about. Turns out we're in the same uh, kind of lineage, and we're going to be on this retreat this summer, getting to know one another, and I really appreciate that. Um, I also sponsor a bunch of guys. And, uh, you know, uh, my sponsor told me you need these three things to get sober, but the people who usually stay sober are the ones that work with uh, other alcoholics, you know. And uh, and my home group is the Design for Living group uh, in Neptune, New Jersey. It's Sunday nights at 7 o'clock. If you guys are ever in town, we're right by the Jersey Shore. It's an awesome meeting. Is, is a, a microphone not working? It's an awesome meeting. I think like 120 people show up there on a Sunday night. We go through the big book line by line by line by line. Um, and I'm just really, uh, I'm really grateful. And like, like, where do I start? You know, um, you know, maybe we'll start on page one of the big book. You know, we were talking, we were sitting around talking about that today, where it says, you know, Bill was sailing for over there. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? You, you know what, what what they mean by over there? That was like a George M. Cohen song. Does anyone know that song? It went, over there, over there, right? I, I don't even know what the lyrics were, but, um, but, but what it was, was it, it was a World War I song, you know? And really think about the people who were charging off to World War I. That was one of the most savage wars that was ever fought. Really think about that. I mean, that was like chemical warfare. They were, they were spraying people with mustard gas. They were jumping down into trenches and gutting people and tearing their, you know, ripping their intestines out. And, you know, you have these guys that are sailing across. Think about the kind of fear that they're dealing with. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm glad my generation never had to deal with anything like that. But he stumbles into Winchester Cathedral and he comes out and he, and he stumbles upon a tombstone, Right. And he looks down, and um, I was, you know, I was actually informed today that the, the tombstone was actually just a clip of a much larger poem, and it didn't actually meant what it, what it meant in the big book. Is that what you said, John? Um, but I mean, it, it, what, what did it say? Does anyone? Can anyone quote it? Uh, Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is never forgot, whether he dieth by musket or by pot. 
an ominous warning. You know, when I think of my own life, like how many ominous warnings have I had, you know? And I think about my own life. I think about this little house I used to live on on Staten Island. And I came out of that house. And I was, I was like one of these guys, a little curmudgeon. I would always like follow my mother around. And I'd be pulling my mother's shirt no matter where she went. And we came out that day. And there was this next door neighbor of mine who was about 17 at the time. I, I might have been four or five years old. And his name was Bobby. And he had one of these brand new Stingray Corvettes. You guys remember those Stingrays? They were beautiful, right? With the T-tops. And he was waxing it up and buffing it out. And, uh, and he goes, oh, Mrs. Cotola, look, she's beautiful. And I'll never forget, my mother said, oh, Bobby, it's a beautiful car. Take good care of it. It'll take good care of you. You know, but I, I remember what happened to that car. You know, he went out one night, he got drunk, and he wrapped it into a telephone pole. He killed his girlfriend instantly. And he was in a coma for about... Five years before he actually died. And what they did, I don't know if they would do these things down here, but they used to do this back then. They would take the wreck and put it out somewhere, right? And they put it out in front of the path mark in my neighborhood. It had all kinds of signs on it. And every time we'd pass it, I'd think, you know, I'm never going to drink booze. I'm just never going to touch that stuff. But it was an ominous warning that I failed to heed. Because as soon as I was old enough to ingest that stuff and get it in my belly. And you want to know something? I'm just going to talk about the first drink I ever had. Does anyone here remember the first drink they ever had? Isn't it funny? I've done so many things. Like, I don't remember the first of anything I've ever done. But a drink I remember. You know? It's the truth. But i got to really think about, like, what my state was before I had the drink. You know? Because I don't know if you you guys are anything like me. I remember being a child. Um... I was a kind of fearful kid, you know? I was just like, I don't know, man. I was just constantly, I was, I was restless all the time, and I just, I was always in fear. I was always afraid. You know what I mean? I was afraid to talk to the little girls because I, I thought they, they wouldn't like me. I wasn't handsome enough. I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't big like all the other kids, you know? Um, I was afraid of all the little boys. I was afraid. You know what I was afraid of? They were going to beat me up. They were going to throw me down. They were going to take my girl. They were going to take my job. They were going to take my money. They were going to take my, take my, take my, take my. And you want to know something? As a 47-year-old man, I still have those same fears. You know? But I'll never forget the first time I, I, I took some booze. I had, I don't know, three or four milligenuine drafts, and I knew exactly what they were. They were in the bottle. Something happened to me. Now, I don't know about you, but something shifted in me. As soon as I experienced that, and you guys know what that is, right? It's not after I have the first one. It's not even after I have the second one. It might not even be after I have the third one. But when I have about that fourth one, and I start to experience that effect, whoo, all that fear is gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? I always say this, like, I could dance like John Travolta. I could sing like Frank Sinatra. And I'm the biggest Casanova in the room. I'll walk up to any woman anywhere and I'll just shoot the shit with her. It's just the way it is, right? And I never had the courage to do that. I never had the courage to do that otherwise. And so I chased that for a lot of years, you know? I did. I chased it for a lot, a lot of years. And so, um, you know, I'm just going to kind of tell, you know, I, the family I came from was actually like a good family. You know that? Anyone here from a good family? Uh, I... Uh, you know, believe me, I've heard the horror stories in Alcoholics Anonymous of people that, you know, were raised up in, you know, crack houses and, you know, their parents were turning them out and, you know, um, having the kids sell their body. I never, nothing like that. I had two parents that if my mother lives to the end of this year, they'll be married for 60 years. 
You know, and and listen, did we have everything we wanted growing up? No, but we got everything we needed. You know, I always had a roof over my head. I always had food in my stomach. I got an education, right? I can I can write. I can do mathematics. I can speak. I can tie my shoes. I could drive a car. I could do all those things because of, you know, the life that these these people afforded me. Um, I don't even know what, where I'm going with that, but uh, I really don't even know where I'm going with that. But when I, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you where I kind of turned out because. Uh, I'm not going to go on a long uh, junkalogue tonight. I don't. I don't know if that really does me any good or it does anyone else any good. I mean, we we we're all here for the same reason. Nobody shows up in Alcoholics Anonymous because they get here after they threw six perfect games. You know what I mean? That's the truth. You know, we all come here and we're twisted. And we're, what does it say that most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled? You know, and so. I just want to kind of talk about what my life looked like when I'm trying to get sober. Now, I, I want to just let you guys know, I first showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous probably in 1995. And in 1995, I've heard a lot of speakers get up and they're like, no one was talking about the solution in 1995. And I got I to just kind of call them on that. Like, I, there were definitely people who were walking around with a big book and they were talking about God and the 12 steps. I just wanted nothing to do with those people. And so I would cruise into Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd scan the room and I'd first see if there's any, like, women that were, I thought were pretty enough and broken enough to want to be with me, right? That was the first thing I would do, you know what I mean? And then I would definitely make it over to, I'd have the coffee and I'd have the donuts. Whatever I could take from Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I would never actually contribute anything. In fact, there's a story that I, uh, I always kind of like attribute to my, uh, my buddy Tom over here. I was in early recovery and, uh, I walked into one of these meetings and I'm getting all lit up with the 12 steps. Anybody like that when you first get lit up with the big book and all of a sudden you're like throwing it at people? You're walking into meetings and you're putting it on a chain and swinging it around the room? So I, I walk into this discussion meeting, right? And, uh, and people are raising their hands and they're talking about everything under the sun but the solution that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I'm getting really agitated, man, because I, you know, I'm all holier than thou. I'm on my spiritual hilltop looking down on all this sick and suffering in the, in the room. And, uh, and I called this guy after the meeting and I said, bro, you would never, un- you would never understand this meeting. I went, it was the sickest meeting with the sickest people you could not imagine. And he says, wait, wait, I gotta ask you a couple of questions, bro. And I said, what? He said, did you show up early and did you set up the chairs? I said, no. He said, did you make the coffee? I said, no. He said, okay. Did you chair the meeting? I said, no. He said, did you share at the meeting? And I said, no, Tom. What, 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 what are you getting at? He said, well, just tell me what you brought to that meeting except your bad freaking attitude. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's all I would do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a taker and a taker and a taker and I never gave anything. And I wanted no part of the 12 steps. I wanted no part of the big book. I didn't want a relationship with God. We were talking about that earlier, right? When I got here and I saw God, 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 God all over the world, I said, I'm not going to Jesus camp. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? I, I just didn't want to do it. And uh, and part of me wanted, you know, part of me, I, I knew that alcohol was a problem in my life. And I definitely knew that drugs were a problem in my life. Because the way my life looked like in 1995 was like this. I was drinking around the clock and anytime I'd get a paycheck... I would disappear for three days and smoke crack and you would just wouldn't see me for a while, you know what I mean? And that's what my life looked like. You know, but I just couldn't get sober. 
And I was looking around the rooms and I was watching all these people get up and they're celebrating 90 days. They're celebrating five months and six months. They're celebrating one and two years. And I'm thinking, why can't I do what they're doing, man? Why can't I get that kind of time? You know, but I, my idea of sobriety was, I'll, you know, I'll take what works for me and leave the rest. You know what I mean? And the people used to say that in the meetings I, I would go to. They'd say, take what, take what works and leave the rest. <laughs> you know, and I got news for you. We have one, one singular problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you might not like what I'm gonna, about to say, but it's the truth and I'm going to say it. If you don't like it, go talk to your sponsor. My name goes in the first column, Anthony C. <laughs> we have one problem in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's alcoholism. And to be honest with you, from what I know, from what I read in this book, it has very little to do with alcohol. You know what I mean? And we have one solution. And that is a relationship with God via the vehicle of the 12 steps. And the problem is I didn't want any of that solution. I wanted to show up and go to meetings and become the most popular guy in AA. And I kept coming back, and they would say, keep coming. And I kept coming, and it got worse and worse and worse and worse. You know what makes me an alcoholic? I always say, I didn't say it tonight, but oftentimes when I introduce myself, I say, my name is Anthony, and I'm definitely an alcoholic. And I say I'm definitely an alcoholic because I understand the malady of alcoholism. You know what makes me an alcoholic? I cannot stop. Anybody else have that problem? Like, I cannot stop, man. You want to know something? I had this beautiful girl. Richard, you remember her. She was so beautiful. If you come up to me after the meeting tonight and ask me, Anthony, show me a picture of this girl. And you, you see a picture of her, you'd be like, oh, my God, how did you get her to agree to marry you? But she did. I got down on my knee. I put a, I put a, a rock on her, her finger, and I asked her to marry me, and she said yes. And you know what? Two or three months later, she told me, get the frick away from me, and don't ever darken the door of my home again. But you know what? I couldn't stop. I lost the career I worked my life for. I could not stop. I, I, I lost a condo. I couldn't stop. I lost relationship after relationship after relationship. I couldn't stop. I got hepatitis C. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. You know, and, and I'm just going to give you like a picture of what my life looked like before we get into like the 12 steps and what happened and, you know, what my life is like today. Um, you know, I had... I had first hooked up with, uh, the and I'm not a first-time winner at this. In 2007, I met a guy who was armed with some facts, and he took me through the 12 steps. And I had a pretty, I had a pretty good experience. You know, and it enabled me to put enough sobriety time together to kind of collect some things. You guys like collecting things, right? And the first thing I collected, I think, was a girlfriend, right? The second thing I collected was I, I collected a little career for myself in the entertainment business. I had moved out to Los Angeles, and my dreams started to come true. Collected a condo, collected a European sports car. I collected a lot of stuff, and the stuff became so important to me. You know, it's funny, man. I, I, I was literally, I had a guy, a new, a new guy call me right before this meeting, and I was on the phone with him. And he had a couple of years of sobriety, and um, and he's like, man, I got, you know, I, I got, I, you know, I, he just says, man, I got married and I had a kid and now I got a, a second kid on the way. And I picked up, man. And I said, well, why don't you tell me what happened? And he said, well, man, I, you know, I, I, I got sober for a little while and life started getting good. I got a wife. I got a career. I'm making six figures. Man, I own a home. He said, I can't lose this stuff. And you know what I said to him? I said, yes, you can. 
Unfortunately, you can lose that stuff. But you can also hold on to that stuff if you're willing to do a few simple things. You know? And when all this stuff got, got you know, more important to me than working with guys, than praying and meditating, than showing up to a home group. You know, to be honest with you, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not a perfect guy. I've done none of this stuff perfectly. There's been long periods of time in my sobriety where my prayer and meditation has been off. There's been long periods of sobriety when I haven't turned in a nightly review. And I haven't really been that accountable. There's been long periods of sobriety where I walked around without a home group. But the one thing I've done perfectly, and I've done it perfectly since the day I got sober, was I'm always sitting down and I'm working with another alcoholic and I'm passing this thing along. You know, and with all other measures fail, that thing always saves the day. You know, and I asked this guy, I said, where did you go wrong? And he said, man, I just, I never really completed the work. I never carried this stuff on and I never passed it along to to another guy, you know. So where was I in my story? I was talking about, oh, being coming in and out and, and doing it for years and years and years. And so, and so here I am, right? And I, you know, I had built a life that was kind of, you know, and when I fell off, it was like, it was like a slow, it was, it like, it, you know what it was? It was like, that, you know, uh, I'll tell you what happened. I had a sponsee and I was talking to this sponsee about, he was, well, I'm going to do the marijuana maintenance program. <laughs> That's what he said to me. What did you call it? California sober. So he's like, yeah, man, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. And I'm, and I'm trying to like minister to him about abstinence being the only way. But meanwhile, uh, this guy had moved out to, he had moved out to California. He's laying around on my couch. You know what I mean? I had a girlfriend who didn't want the guy on the couch. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, um, uh, one day, I'm, I'm on a $40 million film set, and I'm working on a film about these marijuana growers in, <laughs> in California, and they had a real marijuana guy on the set. That's what they had. And the guy was like, hey, Ant, come here. Just come here. Come here. And he had this Dodge Challenger, and I walked up to the back of his Challenger, and he opened it up, and it was all these different jars of stuff. And then before you know it, he's giving me a, a hint, you know. And then before you know it, I don't know what happened. I'm on the roof with my sponsee, and I'm, you know, I'm coming down. And I'm like, my, my eyes are just bloodshot. And my, my girlfriend, who's been sober like six years at this point, looks at me and says, Oh my God, what is wrong with you? You know? And I get into a blowout argument with this woman, a blowout argument with this woman, and convince her that because her father, who's not an alcoholic, smokes marijuana once a year, it's okay if it's just marijuana. Needless to say, I was drinking that very week. You know, and I, and I want to let you guys know something. Like, you ever hear people say in Alcoholics Anonymous, you pick up where you left off. You ever hear that? Really? Anybody ever heard that? I, I got to call bullshit on that. Really? I'm, and I hate to use the, the, you know, the profanity, but I got to really call bullshit on that because you never picked up where you left off. I find this thing is a progressive disease and it progresses even when we're not drinking. It progresses even when we're not drinking and drugging. Right? And it got astronomically worse in short order. So what my life looked like within a few short months was like this. The girlfriend left. Uh, I had burnt every bridge in my career. Nobody trusted me. Nobody wanted to hear from me. And I had lost everything. The sheriff had come in and put tape around my, my uh, property and said, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I can't go on the property anymore. And very quickly, uh, I had moved to downtown Los Angeles. And if anybody knows downtown Los Angeles, it's Skid Row. And I made that my home for a while. 
And the things I saw on Skid Row, the things I did on Skid Row, the people I engaged with down there, I wouldn't even repeat in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but it changed me. And I quickly, in short order, found that I better move at, I better move uptown to Hollywood. So I found a little trestle that I lived under. <laughs> Anybody know the 101 in Hollywood Boulevard? Tom, you know it, right? You know that big overpass there, right? And I was living on one side of the overpass, and on the other side of the overpass was a guy and his girlfriend. And, you know, I mean, the way it was was if I gave the guy $20, he'd let me sleep with his girlfriend. So... The way my life looked like was I would walk up the on-ramp to the, to the, you know, the, the, the traffic light uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, and I would literally um, knock on every window of every car that pulled up. Yo! Open up! I had a gas can that I had stolen. I'd say, yo, man, I, I get on my car. I ran out of gas down the road, and I, you know, I, you know my wife, she's pregnant. She's got to get to the hospital. Can you give me $10, please? And most people would just roll the window up and say, buzz off, pal. You know, but every once in a while, I'd get like a $20 bill, $10 bill, $5 bill, single here and there. Sometimes people would throw change at me and, and, and curse me out. Talk about pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, you know. I would do that as many times as I had to to put enough money in my pocket to go across, spend some time with the guy's girlfriend. And then put as much alcohol and drugs as I needed to just, just so I could breathe. And that's what my life had degraded to. You know? I don't know. I was trying to get sober again. And I was trying to get sober again so bad. I literally was crawling into Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And I'll never forget, I walked into this one meeting in North Hollywood. And uh, there was a woman, a woman and she was speaking in the meeting. And she was telling this story, you know? Um, and the story was about her and her husband. You know, she got sober. And then boy meets girl on AA campus, right? And, uh, you know, she gets married, right? She has AA baby number one and AA baby number two. And then before you know it, like, her husband's like 17 years sober and he picks up and he starts drinking again. And this woman was so brokenhearted, but she said something that I'll never forget. She said, for those of you who come into Alcoholics Anonymous and have an experience with the 12 Steps, and actually have an experience with God, if you pick up and drink again, they hardly ever make it back. And I heard this, and it went from here to here. It became my truth. By the way, I, you know, I'm proof that that's not the case. I am living proof that that is not the case. But I believed what she said. As a looking back thing, I think she was just talking about the pain that she went through losing her husband, you know, and, and losing that whole life for herself. I wouldn't want to have been in her shoes, you know. Um, but I was so desperate, and I, 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 I bounced around from place to place and wound up back in Charlotte, North Carolina to meet with Tom and reinvent the wheel, right? Again, listen, if I go back and do everything just like I did last time, it's going to work, right? Richard's here to tell you it don't work. I think one day I, I, I showed up at Richard's uh, um, car dealership. And thanks for coming down, man. I showed up at his car dealership, and he was just telling the story. I don't know if I had a prostitute with me or whatnot, but I'm beating around. This guy's the general manager of a car dealership, and I'm coming in there with track marks all over my arms and legs. Like, yo, dude, you got you got five hundred dollars cash? I can get. That's the kind of that's the kind of guy I was, man. You know what I mean? This is how I was suiting up and showing up for life. You know. And I just want to tell you that May 1st, 2016, something changed in me, man. 
And I can't explain it. You know, but I, I just want to, and I'm just going to tell you, like, the last few months of my life, you know, they were joking before I had this big gash in the back of my head. Yeah, I was, I was beaten and, and stabbed and left for dead. And, and that's the way I was living my life. I was a street guy. I was doing things on the street. And I, I don't even know what happened. Richard said, what happened? I said, I don't know. But I have a pretty good idea what happened because I woke up and I had no money and no drugs and nothing on me. So I'm pretty sure I was uh, stabbed and left for dead and robbed. You know, but most people would leave, uh, you know, an ICU after something like that happened and they would try to change their life. Not me. I just told you I couldn't stop. I left that hospital and I went right back to doing everything I had been doing, robbing and stealing and ripping and running, you know. And a couple of weeks later, maybe it was, I don't know how long it was later, I wound up back in an ICU. And this time I came to in the middle of the night and all I heard was this beep, beep. Beep. Anyone who's been in the ICU knows that sound, <laughs> right? Beep, beep. And I'm like, oh my God, how did I get here? And I don't know, like when I'm, whenever I'm in a, a place where I'm like, I don't know what to do, like, and I get scared, I just run. You know what I mean? Like, run, go, get to the chapa. You know, and I'm like, I, I get up and I, I try to climb out of the bed, but I, I, like half my body is like, I can't even feel it. I'm like paralyzed. And there's a catheter stapled into my neck, you know? And I fall off the bed and all the IVs just tore right out of my arm. And there was blood squirting all over me. And I'm just laying on the floor, man, and I'm crying. I'm saying, please, God. Please, God. If you can hear me. If you can hear me, God, just please, just get me out of this hospital. I promise you, I will do whatever it takes. I will do it, whatever it takes to recover. And I want to let you know, man, the only times I ever used to pray were at times like that. You guys know those foxhole prayers? You know? It's funny, I was in a uh, meeting in North Carolina one time. I love North Carolina, by the way. And I love the AA program in North Carolina. Um, wish I could go back there. So many of the people that are a big part of my sobriety are from Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, but I was in this, I was in this meeting and, uh, um, this one guy goes, man, foxhole prayers don't work. And I'm looking at the guy. And I'm thinking, you're sober, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? What do you mean foxhole prayers don't work? I think all prayer works. That's my opinion. You know, you may have to pray it over and over and over and keep going to God for the same thing again and again and again. But my experience is, if I ask for it, and I ask for it with a humble heart, I usually do receive it. You know? And something changed in me right that moment on that floor. Something shifted in me. And we often talk about this psychic change, right? We talk about this psychic change, this, what do they call it? A, a spiritual experience, right? The, 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 the thing that just changed. Something needs to change in me, you know? And I don't know about you, but I just was never really willing to do whatever it took. You know, I can't tell you how many times people in Alcoholics Anonymous would ask me, are you willing to go to any length to stay sober for good? How many people have been asked that? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I would say yes, but I wasn't really willing. You know, i got to just tell you guys something. This has got to be our plan. This has got to be something that we really want to carry out. And, and that's got to come from within. In fact, I don't even think it comes from within. I, I don't know what happened to me that day, but something inside of me changed. And something tuned me up just enough, reached into my heart. And tuned me up just enough that I just became willing to do whatever. I just became one of those yes men. You guys know those yes men? Get in the car. Yeah, okay. 
Go to rehab. Okay. Oh, uh, sit down. Uh, write an inventory. Okay. Go knock, knock on a door. Make a man. Okay. Yes. You know, get on a plane. Fly to Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, I, I, my sponsor now, when I started working with, for him, he said this. He said, uh, I want you to do two things. You know, he said, the first thing I want you to do is always work with a new guy. And the second thing I want you to do is I always want you going into some place that you don't want to go back to once a week, every week of your life. And I started this little ministry, you know. I decided I was going to pick up this book and carry it into homeless shelters, into rehabs, into halfway houses, and do a 12-step workshop where I could take groups of people through the 12 steps and give them somewhat of an experience with God. And that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, and it's been quite an experience. But I've got to suit up and show up and I've got to be willing to say yes to life. You know what I mean? And so, um, so here I am in this hospital room. And, and just to make a long story short, my, my right arm was completely paralyzed. And it was probably for the first couple of years I was sober. My kidneys had shut down and I was, I was hooked up to kidney dialysis. See, what had happened was, and I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but so what? Um, I overdosed on some bad stuff and I was down on top of my arm for about 24 hours. You know, and what happened was all the protein in my arm started breaking down, pumping into my kidneys, which shut my kidneys down, which in turn shut my liver down, which in turn turned to multiple organ failure. And when I had come to in the hospital, I had been in a coma for five or six days. They didn't even think I was going to pull through. You know, and here I am, I'm laying in this bed and I'm in this ICU for a very long time, two months. The only guy, the only guy that came to see me at that hospital came here today. And I want to thank you for that. If you really want to know, if you guys really want to know who loves you, you know, I I can tell you what my life looked like. My parents didn't want anything to do with me. They had a restraining order against me. And they said, you know what, we love you, Anthony, but we got to love you from a distance because you're a liar and a thief and you're abusive and we can't have you around the house anymore. My brothers had all turned their backs on me. Forget about the ex. I had this one ex, man. I just, I couldn't, I could never forgive. Anyone got someone like that? You just can't forgive. You just can't forgive that person, you know? And uh, I'm, uh, I'm laying in this bed and I, I want to let, there was no pink cloud for me. My first year, couple of years of sobriety, I was crying myself to sleep. My arm shriveled up like a toothpick. I was ashamed to pull my shirt off. I had hepatitis C. I was crying myself to sleep saying, there's never, there's never going to be a woman in the world who's ever going to be interested in Anthony C. There's never going to be a job that's going to ever want to hire this guy. I, I just saw, and listen, man, when you're coming in and your life looks like this at 40 years old... It's different than when you're 22. And those of you who came in your 40s and 50s and 60s, you know what I'm talking about. See, when you come in when you're 22, most of your life is ahead of you. You know, but there was a very wise man that told me. He said, Anthony, there's a reason why your rearview mirror is 50 times smaller than your windshield. You know why? Because your life's ahead of you. And the most satisfying years of your existence lie ahead. And that comes right out of a vision for you. You know, but I, I, I just want to say this, man. I, you know, I, I, I don't think if I had it any other way, I don't think I would have made it. You know that? Because I just got done telling you guys, I, I just couldn't stop. I, and I, I, I just could not stop. 
I mean, I couldn't stop. We were talking about today. We, were, we, took, we took a walk and we were walking around the neighborhood. Beautiful neighborhood, by the way. We were talking about quitting cigarettes. You know, and I, I've, been, I've been nicotine free for five years. Woo! Is that a miracle? You know, but you know what I said? I said it was much harder for me to give up that nicotine than it was for me to give up the alcohol and the drugs. And you want to know something? I, Tom, early in the day, said, how did you do it? I don't know how I did it. To be honest with you, the grace of God. You know, and I want to let you know that on May 1st, 2016, something intervened in my life and separated me from alcohol for the last time. And I can't explain that anything, any other way but the, but, but the, but the mercy. Mercy. Because I would, I would crawl into churches and kiss the feet on statues and beg God for mercy. The mercy of a kind and loving God. I was there for like two and a half months. And if you guys really want to talk about pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, I had these pretty girls that were nurses at the you know, hospital and they would come in and... Uh, you know, they'd come in and I'd look at them and think like, oh, wow, that's just like the kind of girl I'd like to bring home and introduce to my mother. But meanwhile, they'd come in and they'd, you know, turn me on my side and put a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a pan beneath me so I could, you know, go to the bathroom, you know. And I'll never forget the one, the one girl was looking at me and she just kind of looked at me and looked at the ground and shook her head. And I knew what she was thinking, you know. She was thinking, what a waste. And it was so demoralizing. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have medical insurance. I didn't even have Medicaid. You know, I was indigent. And so what happens in those cases is they just kind of like um, <laughs> kick you out of the hospital when you don't have, you know, life-sustaining treatment that you need anymore. So they dumped me at this homeless shelter, shelter in Albemarle, North Carolina. Um, Tom, you probably remember when I was there. Um, but I, you know, I, I was one of these, I don't know, I, I was just like reflecting on my life. And I was so angry, man. I was so angry in early recovery. I was angry at everyone for abandoning me and, you know, just doing all kinds of... And I called this guy, man. And I and listen, I called the guy my sponsor. He's here today. I called him my sponsor, you know. But anybody got a guy like this that you call your sponsor, but he's not really your sponsor because you don't take any, any of his suggestions? <laughs> you know what I mean? But he was one of those guys, you know. And, uh, you know, and it's funny, like we were talking before and he was talking about, I remember when you were, you know, insanely going on and on about the orange papers, if anyone knows the orange papers. But I was going through this, you know, nasty period where I was going and I was reading these critique of Alcoholics Anonymous by a guy who just couldn't stay sober. And, uh, but anyway, I called this guy and the reason I called him my sponsor and, and I, you know, and I, and I say this, Tom gave me, the perfect stencil for sponsorship. Because he never really mistreated me. He never got, you know, uh, frustrated with me and hung up on me. I called him up and I must have sounded like a blowhard. I was going on and on and on about, I'm, I'm laying in a homeless shelter and my life sucks. And I'm going on and on and on and on and on and on about all these people and how they screwed me over and they, they screwed up my life. And I'm talking about the ex-fiance, and I'm talking about my mother and father, and I'm talking about my brothers, and I'm talking about my employers. And this guy never cut me off. You know? And no matter where I was, you know, screwed up, I was held up somewhere, I'd call this guy, he'd always answer the phone. But he did say something to me that I'll never forget. He said, Anthony, I'm not going to um, argue with you. He said, I, I don't know anyone in my life now who would trade their life for yours. Your life sucks. That's what he said. 
He said, but your life is not in the condition it's in as the result of your ex-fiance. It's not in the condition it's in as a, as, a, as a result of your mother and your father. It's in the condition it's in because you make the same choices over and over and over again. And you're going to continue to make the same choices over and over again unless something deep down inside of you changes. You know? And, uh, and the only way I know how to bring about that change is by, by taking you through the 12-step program of recovery. And, you know, here's the thing, man. And for, for people like us, is there anyone in here, by the way, who's like a multiple offender? You know, because for people like us, there's got to be some multiple offenders in here. But for people like us, right? And, and the, the problem with me is like, I had a whole head full of Alcoholics Anonymous. I would come into an AA meeting and my hand would go up and I'd be sharing about how all these amends I made and blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, I couldn't stay sober. You know what I mean? Like literally I knew exactly when the Dunkin' Donuts would dump the donuts in the dumpster because that's what I would find my lunch. Then I'm walking into Alcoholics Anonymous and my head is so big it can't fit through the door. I know more than you about everything. And man, everything I thought I knew, it, it, it wasn't helping me. It was standing in my way. You know, someone gave me a prayer and I wrote it down in the front of my book called the set-aside prayer. Anybody know this prayer? I know you know this prayer. Don Pritz, right? And he's the one that came up with the prayer. And it goes something like this, Lord, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about myself, my disease, my recovery from this disease, and most especially everything I think I know about you, dear Lord, that I might have an open mind and a desperately needed new experience with you and all your kids. Lord, please help me to see the truth. And someone told me, write this down and say it every day. You know, listen, man, I was in this homeless shelter for a while. And there was a there was a social worker at that hospital that just wouldn't let go of me. And man, there's been so many saints in my life. But she she set it up so that I would go down to Jackson, Mississippi, and that's where my recovery would begin. You know, and I just I went through this 12 step recovery process. And, and let me tell you something. I go through the 12 steps. I try to go through a four through nine every single year. You know, but the first thing I learned in the first step is like this, man. There's something different about me. And do we have any newcomers here? Is there anyone here with less than a year? Less than six months? We got a couple of newcomers in here. Let me tell you something. I walked in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was raising my hand for years saying, my name is Anthony, I'm an alcoholic. And I had no idea what that meant. Except I got to say it to to hang out with you guys. You know what I mean? And I I, I listen, I, I started going through this book. And let me tell you something. I understood powerlessness. I understood my need for power. And I'd made that decision before I even walked into my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. That's just the truth. It went from here to here for me. You know? But I, but I, but I went through the 12 step recovery process with a sponsor. You know, and we started to read this doctor's opinion. And I, you know, I don't know. The thing that sticks out to me is like it, it, it explains things for which we could not otherwise account. Now, I don't know if we actually do have a physical allergy. You know? But I know that I have a phenomenon of craving. You know, and I know that what, what happens with me once I start is I have an inability to shut it down when I want to shut it down. You know, and the truth is, uh, I don't know about you, but I can, I can tell one story, right? I was like probably like 26, 27 years old, and I had this uh, job where I was working for this uh, contractor. And I was driving these big tandem dump trucks for this guy. I mean, these huge tandem dump trucks. 
And uh, literally, where they would put like 16 tons of stone in the back, and I'd like, I'd come in, and I'd been drinking for days and all cracked out, and I'd climb up in this truck, talk about like, <laughs> you know, just talk about like putting people's lives in danger, you know, where they say you do all kinds of tragic things when, when drinking, right? That was me. And, uh, you know, but, um, but he would give me like an envelope full of cash at the end of the week. And, and one week it was like payday and I'm sitting in the uh, parking lot. They're giving out the deliveries. And there's this uh, older guy, Kevin, and he like uh, pulls out this little cooler, you know, and uh, he'd have every, everything in there from beer to blackberry brandy, wine spritzers. He'd have it all in there. And he was the type of alcoholic that would always have a cooler in his trunk. So he pulled out one of those cans, like one of those Heineken cans. You guys know the Heineken cans? Right, and it looked like a keg, and I saw the sweat beating up. It was like 96 degrees out, and I crack it. I took a sip, and I'll never forget the way it felt, man. I used to love to drink Heineken, but you know how it felt? It felt like, wow, I'm going to have a really great weekend. I'm going to be down at the shore, and I'm going to have women crawling all over me and everything else. Yeah. The next thing I remember, that was Friday morning. The next thing I remember, it's Tuesday night, and I'm locked up in a jail cell. And I had been arrested for a DUI, a criminal eluding in a motor vehicle, which is a high-speed chase, and an aggravated assault on a police officer. And I'm like, what happened? Yeah. And that's the physical allergy. That's the physical allergy. You know, and, and my thing to you is like, dude, if, if this only occurs, it never occurs to the average temperate drinker. So it, I'm just going to throw this out there. If you have a similar kind of... You drink one, two, three. You start to experience the effect produced. And then you have a craving for more. You are F-U-C-K-E-D without some kind of a solution. And that's the truth. Because that is the earmark of the alcoholic. Forget about the mental obsession. You know, I could be obsessed with a lot of different things. And I am. (laughs) Throughout my sobriety, man, I see the obsession come up in many, many different ways. But, you know, I went through this and I learned, you know, that coupled with the fact that my mind will never allow me to leave it alone for good. It will never allow me to leave it alone. It will always give me some trivial excuse to pick it up again. And really, when you think of all the, you know, the havoc it creates, it is trivial. You know, so my first step truth becomes this. It's not that I can't drink anymore. I can drink. You know, that's the truth. I'm going to drink, and I'm going to drug, and I'm going to do it until I die, I go insane, or I find some other kind of power. Right? I find something else that lights me up just like the booze did. Right? That's the truth. you know. And that power I find in Alcoholics Anonymous. That power I find in my relationship with God. That power I find through you know, carrying this message to other alcoholics. I, you know the reason I take speaking commitments like this? Because I get lit up like a Christmas tree on December 24th when you plug it in and bang, it gets lit up. You know what I mean? That's the kind of power we need. I need the power to resurrect my life. I need the power to resurrect my spirit. And I've got to make a decision to seek this, man. You know, and, and my third step experience was real simple, man. You know, um... It's only really like a few pages in the book, right? When you go through how it works and you really look at, you know, listen, I'm totally selfish and self-centered and all I do is think about myself. That's just a fact, right? So I need to make a decision to really abandon this. You know, it says we need to abandon ourselves, right? Like, like what, what does that mean? Like, I, I, anybody ever lived in an abandoned building here? Really? This is alcoholics. Ah, we have a couple of honest people. Yeah. Well, what, 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 what do you know about abandoned buildings? There's nothing in it. 
Right? I need to just leave myself. Leave myself at the door. And abandon myself to, to, to being selfless. You know? You know, but it's like, it's this simple. And I just want to say this. Like, I need to make a decision to really put myself in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? Right in the middle of unity and service and recovery. I need to have a home group. I need to have a sponsor. And I need to continue with this step work. And my first sponsor told me, the only decision you need to make today is to complete steps 4 through 9 and start living your life in 10, 11, and 12. And I started writing inventory immediately. When 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 should you write inventory? Immediately. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got guys, why don't you know I start writing inventory? Now! <laughs> you know what I mean? And the truth is, look, I was afraid of the fourth step my whole life. Man, I had to write down all these, and you know what? I was really good at writing down people I was angry at. <laughs> you know what I mean? Someone tells me, write a list of people you're angry at. I came up with a good, you know, 50, 60 names. I'm pissed off at all these people. Cool. Write down why you're angry. Write down how you're affected. And then, whoo! We gotta take a look at where we're selfish and self-seeking and dishonest and afraid. You know, and listen, man, I had, I had a sponsor and I, you know, I had called him up and maybe if you guys had this experience as well, um, I had called him up. I, I had literally been sober for a while and I'm sponsoring guys and I've written a few inventories and I've shared a few inventories. I've heard a bunch of fifth steps. I've made tons of amends and I'm really doing the prayer and the meditation and I'm doing the nightly review and I'm submitting it. But I'm like, oh my God, I'm like crying myself to sleep, you know, and I'm like, I'm a fraud. And someone says, dude, call this guy, call this guy. He's got like 47 years of sobriety. Call him up. And I call him up, and I'm telling him everything you're doing. And he says, he says, Anthony, I'm going to ask you one question, and I want you to tell me the truth. I don't want you to bullshit me. He said, tell me where it hurts. Oh. Oh. Man, I started bawling crying. I'm a grown man. I started bawling crying. I needed to have, and I'll never forget what he said to me. It says, man, it sounds like you've had a a deep and effective 12-step experience and you've had some experience with the book and you know a couple of lines from the book and you could throw it around and sound good in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. But unless that turns into a real deal experience with God, you're dead. You're going to die a very, very painful death and I'm not going to go down that road with you. You know, listen, man, I, I wrote one of the most concise inventories at four or five years sober that I've ever written. It was the shortest one, and it really got down to where it hurts. And you know something? I hadn't shared with any sponsor about the things that happened to me when I was eight years old. You know, that I was molested. And it hurt. And years and years later, I tried to find the guy that did it to me. You know what I found out? He died from AIDS. Yeah. But I shared these things with this sponsor. And we started to, you know, listen, man, I I started to have an experience with this six and seven. And look, you know, I first went through six and seven. It was like, are you now willing to have God remove all these defects of character? Yes. No. Get down on your knees and ask him. God, make me willing. Now say the prayer. And that was my experience going through six and seven in the beginning. You know, until all of a sudden, man, I'm getting torn up with all this pride, man. Where I can't even have a conversation with my girlfriend without belittling the hell out of her and having to be right. Anyone like that? Oh, my God. You know, I get so full of envy, right? And listen, 
The guys I'm writing inventory are guys in Alcoholics Anonymous that are supposedly my running dogs, and I love these guys more than anything in the world, but I'm so envious of them that I'm going all over the fellowship, assassinating their character to everyone who will listen. And I'm feeling so disgusting on the inside, you know? And I start having this experience. And you know, he says, man, there's some action in the sixth step. There really is. The work we do is in step six. It's not in step seven. We say a prayer in step seven. But we got to be willing to live a different way. How can you expect God to remove a defective character that you're currently living in? (laughs) That's what he asked me, you know? And he said, look, man, you've got to, what, you know, you've got to. So what's the answer to this stuff? Man, the the spiritual principle, right, that opposes this pride is humility, right? So I've literally got to be willing to live a humble way. Even if I have to bite my lip until it bleeds, I got to say, honey, you know what? (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Woo! You know how hard that is sometimes? There's one guy, a kept character assassinating him behind his back again and again and again. And I love this guy, man. I love this guy more than anything in the world. So one day I was, I was really suffering. And he said, man, you know, again, you know, the virtue behind this, the virtue behind envy is admiration, man. So one day I call him up at two in the morning and I go, yo, bro, what are you doing? And he goes, what am I doing? It's two in the morning. What are you doing? (laughs) So he said to me, right? And I said, listen, man, I I just needed to talk to you and I needed to tell you some things, man. I said, I really admire you, brother. I watched you build a huge business in recovery. I watched you raise two children, one of which wasn't even your own. I mean, I admired this guy from a distance so far. I admire all the service you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And man, he, he broke up on the phone that night and he started crying, man. And he said to me, he said, Anthony, I, I, you know, he said, I want to thank you so much for this call, man. I was in the hospital all day and my mother, she's on, she's on her deathbed, man. And you just made my day. You just made my day. But I want to let you know something. That when it came to that individual person, that envy was removed and it never returned. Now, I got to be willing to live a different way. And I got to be willing to go out there and knock on every door of every person I've ever harmed to be willing to make complete amends to them all. You know, and the truth is, my first round of amends, I, I did them, man. I went to my family. I went to my uh, extended family. I went to all the people I ripped off, right? I, I paid back everyone. I owed a lot of money. You know what I mean? And, uh, but, you know, I'm going through the steps again at this time in my sobriety. And, um, you know, um, the sponsor said to me, he said, brother, um, you know, there were some things I, I just, there were some things I just wouldn't get honest with any sponsor about. You know that? Because I just, I was afraid. And you want to have those amends that they're just afraid to make, you know? And there was a couple on my list, like, you know, there was this one guy that, like, he was like an Italian guy from, you know, and he, he really was from the Bronx. Who was my friend from the Bronx? He, this guy was a crazy Italian guy from the Bronx. And I was afraid of him. I literally, when I worked for him, I watched him knock out customers of his. He was like a big contractor in our area. And I literally rubbed thousands of dollars off this guy. I had a major alcohol and drug problem. I stole thousands of dollars from this guy. And leaving the job, I thought, like, maybe he knew. And I was always kind of looking over my shoulder. But, you know, my whole sobriety, I'm driving around. And I'm thinking, like, I'm a fraud, man. I never, made, I never made these amends. I never made this right, you know. And my sponsor said, look. He said, man, you got to have the fear to just meet this face to face. He said, how much did you steal? I said, I don't know, about $3,000. He said, do you have four grand? I said, four grand? 
He said, yeah, it's 20 years ago, man. It's interesting. <laughs> he said, I said, yeah, I got it. He goes, well, go to the uh, bank, stick it in an envelope, walk in there, look them eye to eye, tell them what you did, hand them the uh, envelope and walk out. It's that simple. Well, it's not that simple for a guy like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I did, man. I had the money, and I and it was on my it was on my mind. And I kept dot 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 dot. Okay. So finally, I go in there, and you know, I go into the store, and it's this young guy at the counter, and I said, "Is Carmine here?" And he said, "No, Carmine's not here. Who are you?" And I said, "Well, my name is Anthony. I'm a member of a 12-step recovery program, Victory Over Alcohol and Drugs." You know, and went through the whole spiel with him, and uh, and I said, "I used to work for your dad 20 years ago, and I owe him some money. Can I speak with him?" And he says, uh, he says, hold on. Dad, he gets him on the phone. Dad, I got this guy, Anthony, says he used to work for you. I'm like, oh, he goes, all right, hold on. Click. He puts speaker phone. He says, Anthony, what's up? I said, Carmine, what's up? I said, you remember me? He says, yeah, I remember you. He said, uh, state your business. I said, well, I took some money off you 20 years ago. I'm here to repay it. He goes, okay. How much was it? I said, 3000 I got 4000 in an envelope. I wanted to give it back to you. He said, okay, give it to my son. I said, give it to your son? I said, do you want to have a conversation with me? Nope, give it to my son. I'm happy you're doing what you were doing. And uh, take care. <laughs> <laughs> I hand him the envelope. And I walk out of there pissed off, man. I'm like, this guy robbed me of a good story to tell Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> we, are so, we, are, we are such self-centered freaks, man. Um, I called my sponsor. He said, man, you couldn't have asked for a better amends than that, man. The guy took your, he, he took your restitution. He told you he's happy you're doing what you're doing. He gave you peace. You never have to think about that guy again. He said, what's next? Anybody here a breaking and entering guy? Anybody? Is there anybody here who's a breaking and entering guy? I, well, I was a breaking and entering guy. But you see, when I was in North Carolina, I was afraid to break and enter there because in North Carolina, people actually have guns. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I didn't want to, I didn't want to walk into someone in there, you know, aiming at like a, you know, so I would rob your shed. Right? I used to break into people's sheds in Charlotte, right? And I'd go from backyard to backyard to backyard. And you'd be surprised. If you get a set of DeWalt tools, you get a chainsaw, you get a weed whacker, that's like big money, man. You know what I mean? You take that to the pawn shop, dude, you could make out 500 bucks and you're good for days, man. You know what I mean? And so, and that's what I would do, you know? And I never put it on my inventory because you know what? I was afraid if I go and I knock on someone's door, I'm going to be doing time in jail. And I knew what a sponsor was going to tell me to do. And, uh, and he asked me, he said, do you remember any of those places that you did that to? And I said, oh, come on, man. I, I, I shot so many drugs in my veins. I had no idea what I was doing. And he said, can you think of any? And I said, yeah, I could think of two places. I know two houses specifically. Do you know what you took? Yes. Okay, get to it. Right. My old sponsor used to say, the only thing that matters is the sound of willingness. i got to be willing to knock on every door of every person I've ever harmed. I'd be completely willing to make amends to them all. It's just the truth, you know? And, uh, you know, I, 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 I tallied up and I put my first envelope together and I went up and I knocked on the door and I said, uh, you don't know me, but my name is Anthony. I'm a member of a 12-step recovery program for Victory Over Alcohol. And one of the things we do is put together a list of people we had harmed. I broke into your shed back in 2015. And I'm here to pay it back. And the guy looked at me and he said, I didn't live here in 2015. <laughs> so what I did was I handed him the envelope and I said, well, do, do with it what you want. Spend it on your kids. Give it to charity. Do whatever you want. This is one to the universe. But you see, the next house I went and I knocked on the door and I said the same thing. And the guy came out 
And he just kind of pulled his glasses down like this and he looked me eye to eye. And he said, you know, Anthony, all these years we thought, we thought our son took that chainsaw and that weed whacker. But he said, you know, you're giving me hope, man. He said, my son is out there and he's doing, he's doing exactly what you were doing. And we've lost him. My wife cries herself to sleep. He said, please, Anthony, please, can I ask you a favor? He said, can I have your telephone number? If my son ever comes to and he's ever willing to change his life, can I have him give you a call? And I grabbed this guy and I gave him a big kiss right on the forehead. I said, absolutely. That's 100% what we do. And it's only in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's only in Alcoholics Anonymous when we're willing to suit up and show up and do what the next right thing, that we can even have experiences like that, that we could share in those kind of moments in our lives. You know, and I started, you know, listen, I started to really live in 10, 11 and 12, you know, and, and, and really it's like this, man. And I, you know, I, I have a different uh, uh, experience with step 10 today that, you know, when I first got sober, it was like, you know, if you're feeling angry, just, you know, go to God, ask him to remove it, call your sponsor, you know, tell him what you're angry about and then, you know, start helping someone else, you know, and it became like almost like robotic. You know, but, you know, something that I just kind of experienced as I started to stay sober for a while, I started to realize that some of these things we experience like resentment and fear, they're not really academic experiences. You know that? They're like spiritual attacks. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like when we get angry, it just like shudders across our body. I mean, you you know what I'm saying? Like the, the other day I'm driving around in traffic. And I'm, you know, I'm really not supposed to be on the phone, but I'm on the phone for a work call. And this guy's just, he's behind me and he's really laying into me. He's hitting the horn and I'm like, dude, I'm trying to make a right on a, on a, on a, on a a light where it says, don't turn on red. Stop laying on your horn. So eventually it turns green and I make my right and I pull down the street and I'm about a mile down the road and I pull into the left turn lane and this guy pulls into the left turn lane behind me and there's still cars coming this way and he lays on his horn again and at this point I'm on the phone with a client I throw the phone down I'm like F you I had all kinds of choice words to say I jump out of my car screaming and pointing at this guy and then I'm like oh my god I'm like oh my god like I'm a man of recovery I'm like oh what am I doing man you know and I I pulled over the car man and I just sat with it and I went to God and I said God please free me of this man please save me from this and I just like kind of focused on my breathing for a while. And then I picked up the phone and I called someone and I said, dude, you will not believe what I just did, bro. I almost got arrested. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I immediately picked up the phone and I called someone else who had left me a message early in the day who was struggling. And I said, where are you at, man? You want to get a cup of coffee? And I dropped everything I was doing in my day and I went over and met this guy. Now, the real question is, how willing am I to do this, Right. And so it's like this, a prayer and meditation, 15 minutes meditation every morning, right? That's what I do. I, I give the first 15 minutes of my day to God, and I just spend it quietly. Sometimes the thoughts are jumbling around. Sometimes I can focus on my breathing. Sometimes not so much. I, uh, I uh, read some, uh, you know, meditative, uh, you know, morning meditation things, and I kind of shoot it out to my guys. Um, and I go to God throughout the day. I do a nightly review. Every night I submit it to my sponsor. He submits me his. I do the same thing with the guys I work with. You know? And the thing about my step 11 is it's just discipline. It's regimented. I do it every day. You know? And the, I say this all the time. The only difference between me and someone who's new here is that I do these disciplines and I've been doing them for 
disciplined for an extended period of time. But I want to get back to that one thing I brought up before, right? Where it says in Bill's story, right? It says this. And it says this. It's pretty cool. It says, uh, when all other measures fail, right? Intensive work with an alcoholic always saves the day. And I'm sitting with my sponsor, this guy Rich at the time. And he goes, what do you think they mean by that, bro? All other measures. What do they mean by all other measures? And I was like, I don't know. Detox, rehab, (laughs) IOP. He said, no. He said, really think about it. We don't have the steps up here. But he said, you know, an alcoholic's anonymous. Like when all other measures fail. Intensive work. So sometimes when admitting powerlessness and unmanageability fails, because sometimes it will, right? When sometimes when coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves fails, sometimes it will. Sometimes when making decisions to turn our will and lives over to God, it just doesn't go far enough. Writing inventory, reading inventory, making amends, right? Prayer and meditation. And I'll give you an example of that, right? Because it's all like, it's, you know, it's all like conversations and words on a page until we have some practical experience with it, right? I think the, I think the first two words in the 12th step are practical experience shows, right? So, I'm probably like three years sober. And my arms started to come back and I'm, I've got a job now and I'm making some money and I've restored my credit and I'm like, okay, now I need to find a woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is not the first thing we, we, we go for, right? We start to clean ourselves up and I find the perfect woman in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm such an AA freak that I need to, you know, I need to kind of be with someone who does what I do. Um, and she was really pretty and she was really nice and I, you know, I, I asked her out for coffee. And I had a great conversation with her. One cup of coffee turned into like a four-hour conversation. And we were talking about everything under the sun. We were talking about, you know, um, you know, love and marriage and AA and God and sponsees and step work. And we're just clicking, right? Even politics we're clicking on, you know? And I'm like, wow, this girl's like perfect. You know, she's beautiful. She's 14 years younger than me. God just dropped a gift in my lap. You know what I mean? And you want, to, you want to know what happens? She calls me up that week and says, Anthony, I had such a good time with you the other night. I'm going to take you out for a steak dinner on Friday. And I said, what? Woo! I just scored like twice, man. I got a steak dinner on top of it, you know? So she says, what are you doing Friday? I said, well, I'm going to a meeting of alcoholics. Anonymous. What are you doing? She said, I'm going to one too, but yours ends at 9. Mine ends at uh, 8.30. So what I'll do is I'll pick you up and I'll take you out. And I said, cool. And I come out of the meeting. Well, I, I go to the meeting, right? First of all, it was a speaker meeting, and I could not tell you who spoke at that meeting or, or anything they said. So I was paying no attention to that. All I was doing was thinking about this girl. And, uh, you know, as soon as the Lord's Prayer was done, I was like, out the door. You know what I mean? And there I see her SUV, and it's just like, it's revved up, and there's, you know, dot, 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 smoke coming out. And I look to my, I look to my right, and I see this guy that she, I knew she used to date. And he's on his phone and he's texting, texting, texting. And all of a sudden he runs over and he jumps in the SUV with her and they take off together. And I'm like, oh my God, how could they do that to me? These are horrible people, man. Oh my God. Has anyone ever had anything like that happen to them? Oh my God. I would go nuts, man. And I'm, I'm so angry. And I'm so full of fear. And I'm so full of resentment and rage. And I'm going through it, man. And I'm driving around and I can't shake it off and I'm praying to God and asking him to remove this and remove that. And I pull back into my driveway and I'm writing on my nightly review. I'm resentful at A, B, and C. I'm, you know, I'm fearful of X, Y, and Z. And I'm just really, you know, pissed off out of my mind. And all of a sudden my phone rings. Ring, ring, ring. And it says, Sponsee Michael on the dashboard. And I said, hello. He says, hello. I said, where are you at, brother? He goes, I'm at the diner. I said, where? In Long Branch. I said, you wait right there. You got your big book with you? He says, yeah. I said, wait right there. I'm coming now. (laughs) I race down there. I sit down with this guy. I take him through the second half of We Agnostics. And something miraculous happened, man. 
really miraculous. All of a sudden, man, I just... The, the, the anger and the fear and all that stuff, it was gone. And the intuitive thought, right? We intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. This girl is not right for you, Anthony. She has problems in this area. She has sex problems. She does. No one deserves to be treated like that. And none of us deserve to be treated like that. That's the truth. So, I just want to end by saying this. You know, each day I read a couple of different people. Um, I picked them up from different sponsors. One of the guys I, I read is Thomas Merton. He's pretty cool. Uh, New Seeds of Contemplation. Uh, and another guy I read is St. Augustine. And St. Augustine once famously said, he said, uh, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek Him, the greatest adventure. And to find Him, the greatest human achievement. And I wish you all the greatest human achievement. I want to thank you all for having me out. And uh, God bless you all. <laughs>